The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Gary Paul Nabhan. He is the Kellogg Endowed Chair at the University of Arizona's Southwest Center. He is the author or editor of more than 30 books, one of which we're going to focus on today. The title is Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our Land and Communities. Dr. Nabhan was honored with a MacArthur Genius Award, literary fellowships, medals for nature writing, among others. He is also recognized as the father of the local food movement. I was intrigued by his work because he is also titled an agricultural ecologist, an ethnobotanist, and he is also an ecumenical Franciscan brother. Welcome, Dr. Nabhan. It's an honor to have you with me. Well, it's an honor to be with you, Melinda. Uh, your show is great. Well, thank you very much. It's the guests who make the program, I think. And you have written a treasure trove here because I agree with you in that our country seems so desperately divided right now. And yet we are facing ecological collapse with the loss of our pollinators and biodiversity. And you and I both, I think, agree that food can be at the healing center. But I wonder, why the title of your book? Why Food from the Radical Center? Well, I'm really convinced that food brings us together, not just at a common table, but we all value food in terms of being essential to our health and to the health of our children and our elders. And it's one of the few things that Americans agree upon these days. We have such a deep divide between urban and rural, uh, left and right, ethnic immigrants and indigenous or, or native peoples. And we really need something like the recovery of foods in a healthy system and restoration of food-producing landscapes to bring us together because the politicians don't have that capacity to bring us together like we need to do. Washington can't do it. Those of us or on the ground, need to do it with our own neighbors and friends. Mm-hmm. I think both of us have seen, you more so than I, the power of what happens when people come together either to harvest and prepare food together, plant foods in a garden, restore a native landscape, that people from different sides can come together and really work together. So I think that you are absolutely correct when you speak to the notion that food truly is the focus of how we can heal our environment and ourselves. You're absolutely right that there's a space where people come together around food at a common table where we respect and listen to people who have points of view other than our own, and we feel we're enriched by that, we're nourished by it. And that's what this term food from the radical center means, that we find that space that now has become a radical place to be in our country because everyone's off 
to one far side or the other rather than walking across the aisle toward the middle. And that's what we do every time we eat together, if we do that right. Mm -hmm. I remember visiting one of Alice Waters' schoolyard gardens, and that's where I learned that children who are fighting in the classroom can come together and work in a garden and get along. And I thought, oh, that was my first spark of hope that maybe around this foodscape, around this landscape, we can truly thrive together in unison. Well, and I think that's true all across the country, not just in the Bay Area, that Republicans and Democrats, urban and rural people come together to do restoration work for farmland wildlife or to restore our streams and rivers to a healthy condition. And we understand the value of community gardens and gardens for our school children. And that is uh, something that brings us into a common ground where we begin to talk with one another rather than villainize someone who has a point of view different than our own. Yeah, and there are lots of examples of that in your book. I want to go back just a moment and talk about your own journey in this world. You are a first-generation Lebanese-American. You were raised in Gary, Indiana, and Now you're living in the desert southwest in the borderlands, which are so, that's a political hotbed right now. So tell me, how did you get from Gary, Indiana to the desert southwest? And tell me the view from your landscape about the food system. What a great question. I grew up in a part of the Midwest that didn't look very Midwesterly. <laughs> yeah. I grew up in the Indiana Dunes uh, where movies about the Arabian Desert were yeah. being filmed uh, in the uh, 20s and 30s. And so because I had a Lebanese grandfather and aunts and uncles who were born in Lebanon, they gave me stories about the deserts of the Middle East, but they also gave me a rich appreciation of ethnic foods, healthy foods. Uh, The Lebanese diet is really largely a vegetarian diet with just meat on special days. Yeah. And I learned how to taste melons and apricots and grape leaves and spices for my grandfather. And that kept with me. I thought I was going to be just a plant ecologist uh, interested in the conservation of wild plants until I remembered how deeply appreciative I was of the food plants that my grandparents and my aunts introduced me to. And then I figured out a way to mesh those things when I got to Arizona. And I found that the plights that were happening to indigenous people on Indian reservations were very much like my own ancestors had gone through exactly a century ago when they became refugees from their homeland in Syria, a refugee crisis much like the one today that involves over 5 million people. Yeah. And that gave me some empathy for the people that were struggling to maintain their traditional diets here in the Southwest. Right. And now you're living in this borderland area, and you are up close and personal to some of the horrific tragedies that we've witnessed. And I wonder, can you just give us a view from these lands? Because so many of our listeners... We hear the messages from the news media, but we don't really have a sense of what's going on. And is a wall a good idea? Well, as many reports of 
offered to the American public at large. There is a wall just 10 miles south of my home, and it's just in the urban part of the city of Nogales. And just within the last two weeks, they put razor wire, lines and lines of sharp, sharp razor wire up against the wall. And the mayors of both the U.S. city of Nogales and the Sonoran Mexico city of Nogales have condemned that. The city councils voted against that. Not how we show brotherhood and the willingness to partnerships with our neighbors. And so there's many nonprofit groups and grassroots alliances, like my friends at No More Deaths, that are working on the border justice. And food justice is really part of that issue here because we have the largest disparity in incomes and in access to healthy food of any place in the world right along the U.S.-Mexican border. So that people making money on the U.S. side, fixing cars or pruning trees, make five to ten times as much as people just three miles away from them doing the same kind of work. And that means that their buying power for healthy food is diminished as well. So we want to deal with those disparities and are doing it by many cross-border initiatives. These are not people that are rapists, drug runners, or disruptors of the American economy. In fact, in Arizona, New Mexico, and Southern California, about a third of our fields are lying fallow because there's not enough laborers who formerly came from Mexico to harvest our crops like tomatoes or green chili peppers in those states. So this border debate, this immigration debate, has really hurt agriculture of the Southwest. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's so good to get your view from that region. Now, I want to change course and talk a little bit about Earth Day, because I know that you were involved in the first Earth Day back in 1970. What lessons from that movement can we apply to today? Well, it's sort of amusing to think about the fact that as a 17-year-old, I dropped out of high school and then I got into college dropped out of college to work at the first Earth Day headquarters in D.C. And what I found, oddly enough, was that it wasn't wilderness versus jobs kind of outfit at that time. Many of the people who worked on the staff with me, who were older than me, of course, were from the civil rights summer activism that include both blacks and whites of many faiths and many political persuasions in the South. And as civil rights advocacy began to take root and they passed their jobs on colleagues that were from the states where they had gone to help with civil rights advocacy. They came to Washington, D.C. to see if civil rights and environmental issues could be blended and integrated into a larger movement. And 20 million people came out for that first Earth Day. So it was a win-win situation. We were fighting the lead poisoning of our children in cities that occurred because uh, lead was still in the paint on our walls and on our tables. We were fighting contamination by pesticides and herbicides, not just of farmlands that affected our food, but even in our lawns and our schoolyards. So the first Earth Day really was not about pitting jobs against the environment, but really trying to bring people together so that we could create jobs and create social capital through environmental restoration and environmental protection. 
Yeah. And you even write in your book that oftentimes environmentalists are pitted against people who are fighting for jobs. And you say that actually restoring our environment leads to a greater economic benefit than had we looked towards the more environmentally destructive jobs. Well, that's right. And let me give you two quick examples. In the Western states, not just Arizona, but Colorado, Oregon, California, Nevada, the restoration of forests and grasslands and desert areas, our wetlands and our streams, is the third largest employer in rural areas. So the restoration economy is alive and well, even though we don't typically call it that. In the little town of 800 that I live in near the border, over 75 new jobs have been created in the last seven years in restoring ranch lands and farmlands and national forests around us with the full cooperation of ranchers and farmers and federal agency managers and 200 people out of the 800 people in our little community have volunteered at our native plants nursery and in our crews to uh, help heal gullies and reforest areas. And 136 high school children have been paid summer wages that they can use towards their college programs later on to be involved in this restoration work. So those are all very positive ways that ecological restoration of food-producing landscapes is bringing people together again and creating jobs. Mm -hmm. You have a great section in your book called The Conservation Couplets. It's a manifesto for moving from top-down protectionism to bottom-up community-based restoration. And in that section, you write that economists once warned us that conservation will cost so much money and jobs that the growth of local and regional economies will inevitably be slowed, disrupted, or diminished. And then you report, but it's become evident that cooperative restoration strategies generate more livelihoods with livable wages, valuable ecosystem services, and local multiplier effects. Well, and that's not just idle talk. I mean, we're just seeing that happen all over the country. And I'm excited that Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's new Green New Deal is talking about that. Yeah. That we can create more jobs, social equity, and social cohesion through this kind of restoration, what my friend Robin Kimmer calls reciprocal restoration, by restoring the land in a collaborative way. We're also restoring the cohesiveness in our communities. And so this restoration economy is rather remarkable, and it's bringing people together who love the land but talk about it different ways. So the ranchers I know speak about it in a different lexicon or jargon than do uh, retired environmental scientists. But I think they're speaking to the same love of the land, and we have to respect that in people who use a different language to express their values than we do. Exactly. I need to take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Gary Paul Nabhan. Mr. Nabhan is an agricultural ecologist, ethnobotanist, ecumenical Franciscan brother, and he has been called the father of the local food movement. He's the author of many books. The one that I have with me in the recording studio today is titled Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our Land and Communities. 
In your book, you talk about a game that one of the ecologists is playing called Name That Grass. And it reminds me of (laughs) a study that I saw that shows that children are better able to identify corporate logos than they are plants and animals from their natural environment. So I want to commend you for bringing that point forward and encourage listeners to introduce children to their native landscape every chance you get. That's so great that you mentioned that. Years ago, I wrote with a dear friend of mine, Steve Trimble, a book called The Geography of Childhood, where it was really about that dilemma that our kids don't have enough time out in nature playing and learning from other generations to learn the plants and animals all around them. And at that time, there was a a study that showed that they know Pac-Man characters more than they know the birds and small mammals in their own backyards. Mm-hmm. So this is something that we really need to work on. But kids have this remarkable capacity to learn with all their senses about the smells and flavors and textures of plants all around them. And so one of the great successes of the environmental movement since the time of the first Earth Day is the growth of environmental education, not just to privileged white schools in the suburbs, but now some of the best environmental educators are coming from African-American neighborhoods and Hispanic neighborhoods, not just here in the Southwest, but in Ferguson, Missouri, and in South Chicago, and in Dearborn, Michigan. We're seeing that environmental education and food education really enliven discussions with kids because they're so hands-on and palpable and exciting to kids who then get to use all their senses to explore this. Mm-hmm. You write about a word, I hope I'm going to pronounce it correctly, carencia. Yes, that's sort of a longing for your home place that people in New Mexico of Hispanic descent use quite a bit. And it's used here in Arizona, in the county where I live too, that you're attached to a place emotionally, spiritually, and physically. It's part of you. Your identity is not separate from the place that you live and eat. And I think that getting back to getting children involved in nature education, that nourishes that affection for the places that we grew up. And I know I've experienced it myself. I live here in the Midwest now, and I have come to just love the waterways that we have, and I have a great affection for them. Therefore, I want to protect them from some of the risks that we face all around us. And every region has their specific risk, whether it's mining or industrial farming. There are lots of ways that land is exploited to the loss of all of us. That's right. And your attention to healthy food and nutritious food is not unrelated to this need to take better care of the land because healthy soils really produce the healthiest food. And if we have used uh, fungicides and herbicides and pesticides that kill the invertebrates and the microbes in our food, we see a depletion in the gut microbes of our children, the beneficial microbes that allow our children to digest food and and to avert allergies and, and all of that. So that the health of our food is not in any way unrelated to how we 
take care of the land and enrich it and restore it rather than continuing to deplete it year after year and generation after generation. And where you are in Missouri, of course, has some of the most historically fertile soils in the world. So some of the produce in your state is just remarkable, but it's not something that we can take for granted. And I'm so excited by the fact that nutrition educators are are spending time to talk about soil health and its relation to human health. Yeah, and this is really just a new occurrence because certainly decades ago when I was doing my training in dietetics, we didn't learn about soil science and we didn't learn about ethnobotany. And it's so important that we come together right now around these different topics and see how everything is connected. I want to ask you about the way you wrote your book. It's a very powerful book. Each chapter begins with a question. Why did you do it that way? Well, I wanted to engage readers in their own reveries about key moments in nature and in food gathering and processing that have been touchstones in their own lives. Nothing I write anymore is about me. I'm not bragging. I'm not uh, celebrating my accomplishments. I'm celebrating the accomplishments that whole communities have. Communities are the heroes of this work, not single individuals, however wonderful. And Alice Waters, maybe she divert the credit back to all the great teachers in the Berkeley School Garden Programs and all the children that have come up with remarkable insights about raising their own food. So I wanted to see in each chapter that activation of our own memories of what moments in nature and in preparing and harvesting food have meant something to ourselves because I think unless we're all reminded of that, we think that someone else is doing this for us and we really have to remember that we need to be active participants in our food system. As many people have said, we need to vote for the kind of food system we want, not just with our ballot at the polling booth, but with our our pocketbook and our mouths to uh, support the kind of food producers that are doing the right thing so that they don't go out of business producing healthy food for us. Yeah. I asked that question about how you started each chapter because in reading through the book, I found myself unable to say, yes, I have had that experience. So for example, have you ever crossed a dry riverbed at one point in your life, then come back years later to see its waters flowing wildly to the sea? I have to say, no, I haven't. I see what you mean. Yeah. I bet if you had the opportunity for that moment, you'd love it. Exactly. Well, what, what those questions made me realize is that each of those questions requires us to go out and seek that experience. The other question, I found another one. So here's chapter 10, immigrant grains. Have you ever gotten to the bottom of a cooking pot full of rice, wheat berry pilaf, or pearl couscous, scooped up the last slightly charred morsels of those cereal grains, and did they have a sweet, nutty flavor? I don't think many people have had those taste experiences And I think in getting to your point about reconnecting to our heritage through food, we have got to be exposed not only to the natural events, but also the foods that come from a healthy food environment. Oh, you're saying it perfectly. You know, these 
these are not things that we can take for granted anymore where licking the bowl or getting the rice out of the bottom of the the pan was something more that happened when we were in the kitchen with our mothers or grandmothers. You know? Right. And so many kids are on buses or in extra classes while their mothers or grandmothers are cooking for them that they may not have that experience anymore. Or reheating and, and that something. that is incredibly sad because we need that intergenerational contact, not just for the practices of the kitchen, but the beauty of what we learn from one another there, the intergenerational transfer of traditional knowledge. Right. And so many families anymore, there are so many people that have to work multiple jobs. And as a culture, we've lost exposure to those heritage foods. And maybe our parents and even grandparents now don't have those cooking skills and they're simply reheating something up in the microwave. I want to bring a point out that you make in your book about how you say, I want to make one point exceedingly clear. The grinding poverty that we see in so many urban and rural communities cannot be solved by food restoration projects if they exist in a socioeconomic vacuum. And I want to thank you for that. The idea that we cannot vanquish poverty by bread alone, it's a much larger problem that takes all of us working to restore the landscape, our economy, and our foodscape. Right. And, you know, there's this remarkable movement, sort of a breakaway movement of food banks from the Feed America Coalition. They still respect other food banks who've stayed in that coalition, but they've created a network called Closing the Hunger Gap, where they say, you know, we want to see the lines that our food banks shorten as a measure of success rather than how many poor people we feed. Yeah. I mean, that's so simple in one way to say but what it means is diverting some of your resources to creating jobs as the Rochester, New York food banks have done and the ones in the Detroit Dearborn area and the ones here in Tucson with the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. They're creating jobs of unemployed or underemployed people in the food sector. So with our city of gastronomy here, our UNESCO-designated City of Food Cultures, 2,000 new jobs have been created since we gained that recognition in, in uh, 2015. 50 new micro-enterprises of people that were underemployed or unemployed before that, putting new prepared foods, homegrown and kitchen-prepared foods, back in our food system. And so we're not only giving people better food, but we're creating jobs so that they can they don't have to be dependent on food pantries and soup kitchens anymore. And no one wants to ask for a handout. So even the market on the move that we have here that goes to 28 different church parking lots charges people $10 for $50, I mean, excuse me, 50 pounds of fresh, healthy vegetables. And people prefer paying something rather than feeling like they're taking a handout. And they make good use of those foods because they put some of their own money and energy into it. Yeah. Well, we'll have to close with that. I want to recommend this book, Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our Land and Communities, and that includes restoring dignity in that picture. 
In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Gary Paul Nabhan, agricultural ecologist, ethnobotanist, ecumenical Franciscan brother, and he has been called the father of the local food movement. Thank you so much for this book and all of your work. And thank you for being my guest. And thank you for the wonderful work you do in bringing us together around the topic of food. Bless you in every way. Thank you so much. Thank you.